Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Kings chapter 3. Uh, it should be on page 441 of your Bibles. <laughs> uh, First Kings chapters 1 and 2 showed how Solomon was given the throne. He didn't take it to himself. It was given to him. It was a peaceful transfer of power in most regards. Only there were some people under Adonijah that were going to try to take the kingship. And the way that David orchestrated it with Bathsheba, that wasn't going to happen. So Solomon dealt with those people. Um, we saw at the end of chapter 2 that Solomon sat on the throne of his father and his kingdom was firmly established in verse 12. And then at the very end, verse 46, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So that made a nice little bookend in chapter 1 and 2 that we're wrapping up and we're moving on to the next topic in chapter 3. So we're kind of starting in there. So... We pick up in verse 1, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So this is the first connection to Egypt that we've had in the narrative since Exodus. They haven't even been mentioned since the, the parting of the Red Sea. And so the next connection we got what they were the enemies of God's people, but now they're reaching out and building alliances with God's people. And I just, to start off for the night, what a great thought that God turns enemies into allies. And he does it over time. The way he's orchestrated and done it, it's been a long time. Polit this is a political marriage. Solomon's marrying for an alliance. Political marriages were totally common in the ancient world. Frankly, they're still common today. Uh, even up to um, Middle Ages and Renaissance Europe, political marriages were just everywhere. So that idea that you would marry someone from another nation, the idea is they won't attack each other because they would be attacking each other's family. So once you get married or that, there's that alliance, there's some kind of at least a generational peace between those people. This is not Solomon's first wife, and we should note that. When David died, Solomon inherited the harem, or all of David's wives, including... Abishag, the Shunammite. That said, this isn't his first wife. Uh, he already has some. Uh, it's not a good thing that Solomon's marrying these wives. There's nothing in here that says God told him to or that God blesses this situation. It's simply history. He does it. In fact, um, people get particular and say, actually, Solomon didn't break the law specifically here. Because specifically, the kings of Israel aren't supposed to marry Canaanite women. So by marrying an Egyptian, he got around the law. But that's, when I read that, it felt like the Pharisees quibbling over little laws. Like the point here is kings shouldn't be marrying people outside of Israel. But Solomon does. He does it for security, does it for an alliance. And by chapter 11, we're going to see that these marriages are part of the downfall of Solomon. But we get the taste of that all the way through Solomon's reign. Like this thread of sin plays through his life and it, and it messes him up at the end. Oh, what kind of king he would have been if he didn't do these things. But we get three projects right away in verse 2. Note what the projects are. Project 1, 
is that he's building his own house. That's a, a very modest way to say the Palace of Solomon. It becomes a legendary building. Uh, we no longer have it. Um, we know some idea where it is. The second project he takes on is the temple. Again, one of the great wonders of the world when it was built was Solomon's temple. And then we get the Wall of Jerusalem, uh, which is, again, one of the things that makes Jerusalem one of the most defensible cities in the ancient world. All three of these projects are things that handle the civic life of the palace, the government and civic life. This would have been like their capital building. They got the spiritual life through the temple, and the wall becomes their military life, becomes the security of, if you're going to take out Israel, you've got to take out Jerusalem. So this brings a period of peace because he's taking care of things on all ends. Verse 2 says, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Attention's being paid to the degree to which Solomon followed the laws of God. And the summary here is that he took a foreign wife. That's bad. He is about the business of building the temple. That's good. But meanwhile, they're still doing things on the high places. That's bad. And he's walking lawfully with the Lord. That's good. In other words, Solomon's not perfect. He's not Messiah. And we can't look for him to be Messiah. But he did love the Lord. That's an earmark of his early life. Later on, we're going to see he turns away. And the word accept is in there. This accept is about the high places. Why is it an issue to worship on a high place? The reason is, is that Solomon's going to move. So what David did is he took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and brought it to Jerusalem. But David never built, a, he never brought the tabernacle with. So he puts it in a little tent and he separates the two things because God told him to wait for the temple. He didn't want the tabernacle to compete with the temple. Once the temple's done, tabernacle just goes away. In the meantime, the spot the tabernacle is, is still where Saul moved it back when he put it on a high place. So this is one of the things that he never took care of. First Chronicles 16, Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. So Gibeon is also mentioned here. It's a place of peace. This is where the Gibeonites, remember they came up to Joshua and they tricked him so that they could have an alliance with them. So this is a place that has kind of got a history as a great city, Joshua 10.2. This is a great people, a large people. But instead of fighting Israel, they're the only tribe that said, we're going to actually become followers of Yahweh. They converted. And they said, we'll do anything. I, you caught us in a lie, but we'll carry the wood, we'll carry the water. And Joshua then puts them in charge of being servants of the temple. So it, they, they're happy to be servants and serve a living God versus being enemies of God. So the Gibeonites have like a permanent alliance with Israel. The tabernacle being with Gibeon is one of the things that secures that alliance. So Saul moves the temple there, or the tabernacle there, and until Solomon gets busy building the temple. So he goes to this spot, 2 Chronicles 1, says that this thousand burnt offerings was a major event in Israel. All the elders came, all the leaders came, all the musicians came, the leaders of all of the Levite tribes come to this event. It's a massive celebration. So a thousand burnt offerings would feed around 15,000 people. So this is a big party. It's a large barbecue in the ancient world. So here's the offer. One of the things that's interesting is God actually honors this situation. So you're like, well, is it bad that they're at the high places? The idea is that the higher the place you do your worship, the closer you are to the gods. 
So the pagan religions all did high places and groves. Groves being beautiful, scenic, forested, like little shrines that they'd have out in the woods, and high places being as close to the gods as you could get. The idea with Judaism, you don't have to be on a high place to worship God. You can be wherever God meets you. So the fact that Saul did that on a high place was not a good thing. But God doesn't seem to be holding this against Solomon because he takes the sacrifices and offerings that are made and he treats those as wonderful. And God makes this deal with Solomon. And this is, if you've been to Sunday school, I'm guessing you've heard this. At Gibeon, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask, what shall I give you? This is the famous offering of God to Solomon. And Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness. That's actually the same word as mercy and the other just before it. You've, you've continued this grace mercy for him and you've given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king instead. Um, you made your servant king instead of my father, David, but I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And, I, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people too, and numerous to be, uh, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. One of the primary roles of a king was to be the final judge. They're the Supreme Court in Israel. They got lots of little judges, but if cases make their way to the king, they're the toughest cases that the people have to offer. And he's, this is one of the things that's there. It says God appeared to him. God reveals his will through a dream. Uh, this is uh, an honor. At some level, God's treating Solomon like a prophet because he generally goes through prophets. Remember, Nathan had to come to David. Uh, in this particular case, and Samuel came to, to Saul. In this particular case, God's going directly to Solomon. It's kind of an honor and a blessing. It's definitive of prophets that God comes to them in that kind of way. So Solomon combines both the role of prophet and king, but he doesn't combine the role, combine the role of high priest. And that's something that we've seen throughout the Bible is this thread that the Messiah will be high priest, king, and prophet. And you've got examples where you've got kings that look like prophets and uh, prophets that, uh, that operate like high priests. Uh, a definition, Numbers 12, 6 of a prophet is, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, the Lord will make himself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. So the very definition of a prophet is when God appears to somebody in a dream and talks directly to them. So that's part of where we don't, didn't see David combining the roles, roles, but we do see Solomon combining them. So it's a hint but it's not Messiah because he's not the high priest. Zadok is the high priest. That was clear at the end of chapter 2. And then the offer, ask, what shall I give to you? Of all the people that have walked the earth, I don't know that many people get this kind of offer from God Almighty. What a powerful request. But it's also a test. How do you answer that? If you could have anything you want in the world, what would it be? And for me, it used to be a hot tub. Now i got to think of something new. Like We all have our bucket list. Some of us are simple with what's on the bucket list. Solomon could have asked for anything because God can produce anything. I want big armies. I want to conquer the world. You know, I want to be Solomon the Great. You know, if, if you had a promise like that, know that that comes with a test too. With great, with great power comes great responsibility. So Solomon's wisdom, I think we got to see in chapter 1 and 2, he's already a pretty wise person. 
he's operated and took the throne with great clarity as to what he was doing. It's interesting that somebody that already has a degree of wisdom is wanting more of it, almost like God put it in his spirit well before this question showed up. I do have such a promise. So one thought is, I wish I had a promise like that, that God would give me anything. I could have anything I wanted. And then it occurred to me, because my wife was talking about something totally different, and then it hit me, well, actually, we all have that promise. So let me read you this. Matthew 7, 7, this is Jesus talking. After he says, don't throw your pearls to swine, this is what he says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. We actually have this kind of promise from God. And then it was, so then you're thinking of it, with the condition of abiding in Jesus, so this is conditional. You abide in Jesus, and John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You mean the power of prayer is that powerful? Yeah. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5, 14. If my heart loves the Lord, then my will is aligned with his will. I ask anything and he gives it to me. Whoa. With great power comes great responsibility. If you're following the Lord God Almighty and you have the power of prayer at your disposal, that's something we need to be thoughtful about how we use it. So Solomon gets this thing that's a precursor to what God's going to give to the entire kingdom of God. Ask what you want and I'll grant it. Now this isn't prosperity gospel. And I really want to emphasize that there were two conditionals in the New Testament promises. That you abide in Jesus and that you are moving according to his will. If you're just asking for selfish stuff, I think God chuckles a little bit. Nope, you're not quite there yet. But when we're moving for the kingdom... God moves for the kingdom and does things. And we do it with faith and with patience. So we pray for something and we keep praying for it until it happens. God loves to see his people be diligent. You got that kid in youth group that you're working with, that family member that you're praying for? Keep praying for it. Keep asking for it. The promise is that God will grant those things. So if it's in line with God's will that people come into his kingdom, then he's going to move with you and and, and he's going to help do those things. God will put it on your heart. You pray for it. And Solomon loved the Lord in verse 3. His, his heart is in line with God's heart when he gets this offer. For faithful followers, God delights in giving to his children. I don't know why this is the case. Honestly, I think this is one of the great mysteries of Christianity. Why does, why does God delight so much in, ple- in, in blessing his children? And I, I don't understand why that's the case, but it is the case. He delights in showing things to his children. Look at how wise people do this sort of thing. Verse 6 says, you've shown great mercy. Solomon understands and honors that before he asks for anything, he prefaces it by understanding who God is. God, you are a God of mercy. Likely God treats Solomon this way to honor his father David. And the reason for this mercy is David's life. And Solomon just gets that. You're not blessing me because of my young life. I'm just a little boy. You're blessing me because of my father. Because you walked in, in, because because he walked before you in truth. David had a lot of shortcomings, but the way the Bible remembers David is that David loved the Lord, period. And we just got done going through all the sins of David. But the fact that at the end of the day, he loved the Lord, the sins get wiped away in the record. I love this. Solomon never presumes that he deserves the blessing of God. The humility of Solomon here is essential. And the answers he's going to get from God are based on this humility. When we come before God according to his will, his will is that we understand who he is and who we are in the light of God. 
He's Almighty God. We're his children. And to align that way the way Solomon does is a great way to start your prayers. Verse 6, Solomon isn't, has an uprightness of heart that's here and, is, and, and, and acknowledges that the definitive measure of a king is the uprightness of their heart. And David had that. You've continued, Solomon remembers the past work of God, and he notices that God keeps giving mercy. He continues to give mercy. He's already done so much. It says, you have given. Solomon acknowledges the gifts from God. Solomon didn't get the kingship. It was handed to him. He didn't fight for it or battle for it like Absalom or Adonijah. God already gave him the throne, just like he gave David the throne, just like he gave Saul the throne. He arranged events in such a way that he put him in that position. And then verse 7, but I am a little child. Actually, the word am there is not there in the Hebrew. It just reads, but I, little child. In the Hebrew, the word little child is insignificant, small, or unimportant, usually used for the word boy, servant, lad, or youth. At this point in time, Solomon's about 20 years old. And he's basically saying, I'm, I haven't, I'm not anything substantial yet. And there's a truth in that. Like, we try to run for it and build people's self-esteem up, but we see godly, wise people in the Bible, they don't build up their own puffed-up self-esteem. Solomon just admits, I'm new, <laughs> and I don't know how to run a kingdom, yet you've put this responsibility on my plate. What do I do? So there's humility, truth. He doesn't self-inflate. He doesn't deflate himself either. Solomon recognizes God's picked him. And, he, and, and honestly, like a lot of us are like, oh, I'm not worthy, right? But Solomon doesn't deflate himself either. He's exactly what God sees him as. And that's, and that's the king of Israel. So there's a spiritual maturity to Solomon. Like he's been raised as a believer. You can tell that this isn't his first time to the show with God. He's been praying these kinds of things for a while. At least that's the impression I get. He does, and then this phrase, he doesn't know how to go out or come in. That doesn't mean he can't exit a building or leave a building. It's an idiom that's used on how to conduct himself. Kings in the ancient world had other people watching them all the time. So kings had to conduct themselves in a certain way. Like I remember when I first took a leadership job, the school board wanted me to wear a tie all the time. I got a big, thick neck, and when I wear a tie, I look like a little plum. So it was, I had to do these loose tie things. But there was a way that they expected me to go out and come in as the principal of a school. They wanted me to act and look a certain way. And Solomon's admitting, I don't know how to do that. Like his dad was a warrior, but he doesn't need a warrior, right? Verse 8, and Israel's huge. This responsibility is large. So he's laying his concerns at the feet of God. What a great prayer. God, all of this stuff is too big for me. I don't know how to do all of this. I haven't ever directed a play before. I've never ran a youth program before. How do I do this? I don't know how to organize a brand new school. How do I do that? It's way over my head. Verse 9, give your servant an understanding heart to judge. Just That's so worth picking apart. We're going to see that Solomon's knowledgeable. We'll see that at the end of tonight. He's a smart guy. He studies everything, medicine, biology, all the stuff. But none of that is an understanding heart. In the Hebrew, that's shema. It, and literally, it means to listen or to hear. Lord, give me a listening heart. Help me to know what you're saying. I wish God was louder, but he's often quiet. He's a still small voice. If you really want to hear God, you need to have still small times in your day in order to hear him. Intelligence is pretty useless without wisdom to go with it. So as intelligent as Solomon is, it's not the same as wisdom. 
right? Tabletop games separate intelligence and wisdom into two different stat categories. They are two different stat categories. I've met wise people with no intelligence, and I've met intelligent people with no wisdom, and they're just not the same stat. So you can have an 18 in intelligence and be a two in wisdom, and you don't know what to do with it. Like, knowledge, intelligence, is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in your fruit salad. Right? There's a huge difference between the two. Knowledge is seeing the truth about a person. Wisdom is knowing not to blurt it out in their face. Like have some tact around that. Read people. Listen to people. Give me a listening heart, he prays, an understanding heart. Understanding heart then implies both wisdom and knowledge and a heart that has both of those things mixed in together. The word heart there, lav, is the inner person or the moral person. The inner heart is applied to both of those aspects. The ancients saw the word logos in the Greek, or the word as being the head, and thought would be, the, would be the intelligence. So you think things, and you feel things. And the combination of those is that intersection between intelligence and wisdom. So just that kind of psychology of the ancient world, or at least how they perceived it, he's, he's writing in the same way, which almost dates the book. So Solomon didn't want to know how to do, just know the right thing to do, but he wanted the heart to judge it. The word judge is in there. Help me to judge it, to discern between good and evil. That is essentially what wisdom is. I might know things, but to know how to apply them and use them and practically apply them, well, that's wisdom. So he wants to make the right call. And, and I just, again, pulling apart this. To, I want to know between good and evil. Isn't that an interesting thing? You'd think it's really easy to say. Evil is the person with the black hat, and good is the person with the white hat. And they're so easy to tell apart. But Solomon's wiser than that. He knows that evil generally comes disguised. And when he's judging the nation of Israel, he'll have two sides in front of him, and the right path is not always easy to pick out. Should I take this job or shouldn't I take the job? Should I hang out with this person or shouldn't I hang out with this person? Like good and evil discernment is hard to unpack in day-to-day -day life. Evil comes disguised, and it almost always disguises itself as good. Evil says things like, I will, this thing will protect you, not God. Don't worry about God protecting you. Or this thing's going to make you popular, but don't worry about God. Worry about what these people think. This thing's going to keep you safe, but don't worry about God keeping you safe. That's evil. This thing's going to win souls to the Lord, but don't worry about God winning souls to the Lord and serving his will. Just do it yourself, right? Evil creeps in in the guise of good. And, that, and Solomon's asking, like, help me with this. Or even worse, evil says, if you do this thing, you'll be happy. This will lead you to a happy, content life. But don't worry about God leading you to a happier, good life. Just forget about God. So evil always presents the things that we want in life, but does it without God at the center of it. That's evil, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can make those discernments yourself. Why do you need the law of God to tell you how to live? Do it yourself. What you feel is right or wrong, that's the true thing. Don't worry about God. That's evil. And evil comes looking awfully fancy. It's very appealing. It's a great marketing campaign. That's why Solomon asked to discern. He doesn't want to be blinded and make stupid mistakes. He grew up with David. He watched his dad make stupid mistakes. Right? So he heard about it. He heard the stories. Even before he was born, this thing with his own mother. You know, Solomon heard those stories of what happened. 
And Solomon knew, I don't want to be like, I know my dad loved the Lord. I know you're blessing me because of my dad, but I don't want to make the mistakes my dad did. Help me discern between good and evil and know the difference. So open rebellion's easy to spot, but the subtle threats to a kingship, to a godly life, those are the things that are hard to spot. Bible tells us throughout, be on guard for those subtle things. Keep your heart, tend to your heart, watch out for it. So this is a good start for Solomon. He, he wants to serve this great people of his. This is not a pagan nation. Solomon says this is your nation. It's your people. What a good start for Solomon. Solomon asks for character, not riches. If you have character, you can build riches. If you have riches, that doesn't necessarily build character. Remember one of the jokes about the, the farmers were asked, you know, what happens if all the cities on earth were destroyed? And the farmers would answer, well, if all the cities are earth, on earth are destroyed, the farmers will just rebuild cities. But if you went the opposite way and all the farms on earth would be destroyed, there'd be nobody left to rebuild the farms. Right? And it's like that with character and with wealth, too. Even spiritual wealth. If character isn't there, spiritual wealth doesn't follow. It just doesn't work like that. Also note, this is a private conversation between God and Solomon. In a private conversation with God, Solomon could have asked for things. Nobody else would have known what he was asking for. I just think that's interesting. Like, in your private spaces, does your heart ask for things that are godly? Or in the private spaces, are you still struggling with temptation? But in the private spaces with Solomon God, he's asking for godly things. So God tests his heart. He sees Solomon is up to the task, and then God blesses him in verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you've asked this thing, and have not asked long life, now he gives this list of things that most of us would ask for. You didn't ask for long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Hmm, Respect. It's kind of like if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Solomon should have said, I wish for three more wishes. Right? We all think through these. If I could wish for anything, what would I do? And he wishes to be able to do his job well. Lord, help me to do my job that you've given me. Help me to be the best that I can be at what you've put in front of me. The best teacher, the best engineer, the best FedEx delivery man. How can I be the best at what I do? God sees the heart of service and in verse 10, he's pleased by that. How can I be the best student? How can I honor God? And the answer to that grant is sit in the front row, right? Yeah. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things get added unto you. That's exactly modeled by what happens here. Verse 12, behold, look at this. I've done according to your words. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you or before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. This is interesting. Look at the tenses in verse 12. He says, I have done according to your words. He looked that up in the Hebrew and it's in the past tense. Look at this, Solomon. I've already given you a wise heart. You're wise enough to ask what you just asked for. I've already done it. And in verses, chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Kings, we saw Solomon act in a wise and discerning way. He made good decisions. God's already done it. I've also given you what you have not asked for, verse 13, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all of your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God renews the promise that he made to David, to Solomon. And he passes the promise on directly. Solomon doesn't need it secondhand. 
The word behold there, look, I have done, is asa in the Hebrew. It, it's the same word that we use for making things. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he saw, everything he made, and behold, it was very good. So what he's done here is he's made something in Solomon and Solomon's kingship. Look at what I've made. And the way he lays that out to Solomon is look at what I've done. I've made something here. And you're part of it. You're part of this thing God's doing. So asa and then the word given in, in, in the Hebrew, that's natan, are both primitive roots, both past, present, future participles. So he's saying not only has he done it, he's done it, and he's going to continue doing it. So this is a, a really an interesting pronouncement by the Lord in a lot of different ways. Verse 13, I've, I have also, God's going to do more than what Solomon asked for because he's going to give him this. You asked for wisdom, which is right here on the smart things to ask for. I'm going to give you everything behind it that most people want. So I'm going to bless you at where you ask, and I'm going to bless you with all the backfill, so to speak. God adds riches, honor, and legacy. So legacy is this. We're here today in 2022 reading about Solomon. We're not reading about other ancient kings. So the legacy that God gives is validated even in our own Bible study tonight. So part of this blessing is Solomon understands he can have the whole world and lose his own soul. The sad part about Solomon is that he gets this amazing gift at the beginning of his life, and then he mucks it all up. You can have wisdom and still screw it all up. Because even knowing that, Knowing the difference between good and evil doesn't mean you'll do it. So there's something beyond this. What if Solomon, instead of asking for wisdom, asked for, Lord, I pray that my heart follows after you, that we have a good relationship. Wouldn't that be the next step down that thing? So what profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. In the New Testament, we see how this gets applied Getting everything doesn't get you everything. Spiritually, getting everything doesn't necessarily get you anything. That sounded almost like a tongue twister. In verse 14, it says, so if you walk. God gives Solomon a hint here. You're going to get long life. Solomon only lives to about 60, maybe 50. He doesn't get a long life. And part of that is he doesn't walk with the Lord. These wives he's marrying actually lead him astray, which we got a little hint of that at the beginning of the chapter. So he's going to be a case study of having everything this world can offer and still falling short. When we went out to Glacier National Park, we studied Ecclesiastes. That was Solomon's book. He got everything in the world and still fell short of having a life walking with the Lord. What a disappointment. But what an awesome book we get to read because of that. Like God's setting up the, <laughs> that he's going to have Solomon write these books. So part of what God's giving Solomon here is he's giving him an honest experiment. I'm going to give you everything this world has to offer with wisdom to understand what's right and wrong, and that discernment's going to get you to write Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, a good part of the Proverbs, two Psalms. All of that's part of the blessing that Solomon's going to get, but it's his experience having everything and not having a heart after the Lord that he's going to inspire him to write those books. That said, my ways, my statutes, my commandments. God has moral absolutes for Solomon. You have to stay in the boundaries. You can have all the freedom in the world you want. You can be in a plane and have the freedom to jump out of it. But there's a moral absolute that you better take a parachute with you. 
right? There's guidelines to those freedoms that we have, and without those guidelines, they're not fun anymore. Hitting the ground is an unpleasant experience. Nobody's ever lived to tell about it. That I know. I, I guess there, maybe there's some people that have bounced. It's still probably not a pleasant experience. So freedom within the absolutes is a total joy. Keep God's ways, keep his statutes, keep his commandments. Total joy. It's like a convertible ride with the top down on a beautiful day. But a freedom without absolutes is like being outside on a beautiful day and walking in front of a semi-truck. It's just not the same thing. So this idea of having some absolutes, Solomon can have it all, but God keeps the absolutes in place and conditions the blessings on top of that. Without love, your intelligence is just empty. Without love, your wisdom's going to fall short and your heart will pursue other gods, 1 Kings chapter 11. If you keep your faith to believe in God and you fulfill all your hopes, it's all rooted in love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So there's a ranking of attributes. The lowest level, if we could do our own taxonomy, is stuff. I want things. That's the lowest level of wealth we can acquire. Then the next thing is intelligence. I'd like to know things and go to college and be super smart and get an education. The next thing up is wisdom. And I want to build wisdom. That's what Sol Solomon asked for. But there's things above wisdom. The next thing in the taxonomy is faith. Lord, help me to walk in a way that I know that you're going to be there when I walk that way. And the next thing up there, according to that, is hope. Lord, help me to have a hope in your promises to come. And the next thing up the line, the most important things, is love. All of it's like clanging cymbals and noise. If, if you don't have love, you have nothing. Make a friendship. Be somebody who cares for other people and, and somebody that people will care for back. Have those relationships. The entirety of the church is based on love. We love one another. We care for one another, period. And it doesn't matter how smart or dumb we are. It doesn't matter if we have stuff or don't have stuff. It doesn't matter if we're wise or not. We have some people that do some pretty dumb things like build pirate boats. But that's okay if we love each other. It's within the boundaries of God's absolutes, faith, hope, and love. And boy, when we get to heaven, we don't even need faith or hope anymore because we're there. We've arrived. All that's left at the end of it is love. So then Solomon, verse 15, back in our chapter. Sorry, I went on a tangent. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. The first thing he does after the dream is he goes back to Jerusalem where the ark is and where the temple's going to get built. He gets off the high place. Isn't that cool? First thing we do when we encounter Christ, get off of the spots we're not supposed to be and move to the space we are supposed to be and trust that God's going to work with that. So next we see an example of supernatural wisdom. God keeps his promises. So we get this famous example. I'm guessing most people have heard this, so I'm just going to read it through. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king, stood before him, uh, and one woman said, Oh, Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together and no one was with us in the house. In other words, there's no eyewitnesses and the kids are too young to tell who was their mom, right? Except for the two of us in the house and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. Uh, in the ancient world, kids didn't have cribs all the time. Sometimes they just laid in bed. There's still tribes and cultures today where the kids just sleep in the bed with their mom. 
and their dad. So that's not too weird or uncommon. Verse 20. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. And the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. So Solomon prays this prayer, goes back, does a thing, goes back to the court and starts to judge. And he gets these two women yelling at each other in front of him. And I'm thinking, like, he has to be thinking to himself, thanks, God, this is great. So he has these two women. The word harlot there doesn't necessarily mean prostitute. It just means people that were living in infidelity, or both women having sex out of marriage. They both get pregnant. They both have a baby. Then one claims the living one's theirs, the other. What do you do in this situation? The law says you're supposed to have two eyewitnesses. Well, you don't have any eyewitnesses. Normally, you'd say to a kid, hey, kid, which one's your mom? And the kid, out of love, would identify who their mom is. That's my mom. But these kids are too young to identify who's the real mom. So what do you do? There's nothing in the law of Moses that tells you what to do. So here's a king. He's in a situation. But it occurs to him to have kind of this example of wisdom. Um, the judges in Israel, Deuteronomy 13, 14, they're supposed to inquire, make a search, and ask diligently, and behold, if it be the truth, that the thing is certain. There's no way to find certainty in this case, and that's why it's such an interesting case. It's her word against her word. And he's got no, he can, both of them are claiming that they know the truth. So Solomon's job isn't to pick which woman he likes better. His job is to search out the truth, and he does his job with great wisdom. So the solution is this. He, can, he, has, he really has a few options. Solomon can pick mom number one, or he can pick mom number two, or he can pick neither of the moms and maybe take the kid and give it up for adoption. He chooses option four. So here it is, verse 24. Then the king said, bring me a sword. In order to pull this off, Solomon had to sound dead serious. So he puts on a little show here. He acts a little bit. So they brought a sword before the king. They don't ask him why, but this is looking ominous. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Just so you all know in this Bible study, if you divide a living child in two pieces, it will no longer be a living child. Just want to make that clear. And give, one half, give half to one and half to the other. This is ugly. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him, she's his mother. He finds out the truth of the matter by defining who loves the kid. And honestly, this is just wise. It's wonderful. If only I could have this kind of wisdom. So Solomon revealed who had more love because he searched out the matter and he tested them in the same way that God tested him. I want to give a situation and I'm going to see how you react. And the reaction is going to be the witness of your heart. So when both women, one woman says, save the child, and the other one says, cut him in half, he has two witnesses. One that loves the baby, one doesn't. A positive witness and a negative witness. He's got exactly what he needs. He's searched out the matter. He makes a decision. I, it's just brilliant. It's famous. This is the story we tell. Here's the other thing. Given the context of the chapter, this is just an example of Solomon's wisdom in the court. 
So it's the way the writer is saying, and this is like how Solomon did business. Imagine the impact this has on everybody. I live in a country where if my case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, it's going to get judged fairly. So if I'm righteous and I'm acting with the best interests of people at mind, I can trust that my government's going to be fair with me. What an assurance that is. What an assurance that is to other nations around Solomon. Past enemies of Israel hear legends of Solomon's wisdom. We're not going to mess with Solomon because he treats us fairly. We do trade exchanges. He's not out to make war with us. He's, he's here to make a deal, right? And they could trust that when Solomon said yes, it meant yes. When Solomon said no, it meant no. We learned that in chapter 2. Solomon means business. Verse 28. All Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Promise of God complete. They recognize this guy's got something supernatural about his wisdom. The implication here is that this story is typical of Solomon's court. So legend spreads, the word gets out, Solomon's a different kind of king. It says they feared him. Uh, if you're evil and have selfishness at heart, you should fear a just king. If you're righteous, you don't fear a just king, you praise the Lord you finally got one. So the people that would fear Solomon are people that have every reason to fear Solomon. Now in chapter 4, we're going to see evidence of worldly wisdom and prosperity. It's just kind of keeping with the same thing. This is the deal God gave, and now we saw his wisdom. Now we're going to see his prosperity. So Solomon's administration is really the second example of God's blessing and God keeping his promise. So David disciplined loyal followers. He raised up godly men. Solomon trains leaders. It's different. So Solomon's kind of a leader of leaders. And this list kind of gets tedious in the first few verses of chapter 4. But think about the fact that this is what marks or is proof of Solomon's wisdom. He was wise enough to not do it himself. He knew how to delegate. He knew how to raise up good leaders. So Solomon was king over all Israel. And these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elhori of Hef and Elhijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Eliud, the recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. This is before Abiathar gets exiled. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend, Ahishar, over the household, and Adoniram, Adoniram the son of Abda, over the labor force. Before you all come up afterwards and correct my pronunciation, <laughs> you all know that I pronounce those with a Minnesota accent. So we're going to just keep going. So here we see the administration of the courts. Just a few things to point out in the administration. Number one, Solomon's organized. He's got people over each area. And that organization is extended from David's thing. First, the first person on the list, notice, is the priest, right? But the priest isn't Zadok. Uh, it's Azariah, the son of Zadok. So there's three priests in this lineup. And that means those priests had slightly different roles. The first one would be like the prime minister, the person that's kind of David's right-hand person and it comes to administrative duties. He's a priest to the court or a servant to the administration. He's not the high priest over the temple. Verse 5, that's more of an advisor friend priest, like a chaplain or like a personal kind of spiritual buddy. And it's his friend. You get Abiathar, who's in the list. He was exiled back in chapter 2. But 
he isn't removed from the role of high priest because Solomon can't remove him from the role of high priest. He doesn't have that authority. But Solomon can reassign him to doing other things. So he, that's one argument of like, well, maybe he wasn't exiled when this was written or he was exiled, but he just had diminished duties. Either way, David had six people in his camp cabinet back in 2 Samuel. Solomon in this list has 10 people in his cabinet. So we can see Israel is growing and the complexities of ruling the kingdom have grown. Uh, the, there are two scribes now. David only had one scribe. So the job of keeping the, the records of the kingdom have grown. And part of that is because they're not just keeping the Torah. They're also keeping judges. They're keeping the Samuels. They're keeping the kings. Chronicles is getting written up right now. Not only that, we're going to start to see all the prophets' books getting written during this time period. So the scribes, and these are the people over the scribes. When somebody made a prophecy, they wrote it all down word for word. If it came true, they kept it. If it doesn't come true, they would purge all of that prophet's records. So the prophecies we have are people that said they heard from God, and God manifested that by making it come true. So David uh, then has... Solomon's grown the administration of David. He keeps some, he replaces others. Jehoshaphat is somebody that was on David's list, but he's also got new people. Under David, the military leaders were listed first. David was a man of war. He had to keep the enemies of Israel at bay. Under Solomon's administration, notice the civil officers are listed first. The military is listed last. Ahishar is a new position. Uh, this kind of idea that there's these holdings, this household. And we saw that Solomon's having feasts with a thousand sacrifices. And we're going to see at the end of this chapter how big the household of Solomon's actually gotten. So you add all this up, and you have somebody to oversee it, and then you get abda over the labor force. The word labor force in the Hebrew is tribute or revenue. And so labor force is weird. It sounds kind of Egyptian, like the person over all the slaves. It's not quite like that. It's abda over the revenue or taxation. So taxation wasn't just money or something you did online. They had to like collect sheep and animals from the different tribes. And we'll see later how that kind of worked out, how that was organized. Um, but in this sense, leadership for Solomon wasn't just power and popularity. Leadership for, for Solomon was organizing who's in charge of what and actually letting them do their jobs and to do it well. So we get this take on caretaking. Then we get to verse 7. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. That means that they're really providing a 12th of the, the nation's needs. So it's equally divided. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim. This is not who the movie was made after. Ben-Decker uh, in Makaz. Uh, so... Ephraim's north of Jerusalem, and we're kind of, if you look at this on a map, we're kind of doing a spiral out from Jerusalem as we do this, but we're kind of just working our way around as we do it. Bendeker is in the hill country north of Jerusalem in Makaz, Sha'albim, Beth Shemesh, great archaeological digs there right now, Elon Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed, which is west of Ben Hur's territory, and Arubath, and to him belonged uh, Soko in the land of Hefer, south of Bendeker. Uh, then you get ben, Adab, ben Abinadab in all the regions of Dor. He had Taphath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife. So if you, if you marry into Solomon's family, this person got the coastal Mediterranean area. Beautiful, abundant. You get fishing, forestry, mining. 
Apparently there's some benefits to marrying one of Solomon's daughters because this person gets some nice territory. Verse 12, Ba'ana, the son of Ahilud, Tanakh, Megiddo, Bashan, which is beside Zaratan below Jezreel, from Bashan to Abel, Meholah, on the far, as far as the other side of Jokneam. This is the middle inland part, still west of the Jordan River. Uh, Megiddo Valley is one of the richest agricultural valleys in the world. Beautiful soil, easy to produce food. But these regions would be not by tribal boundaries if you do it like that. Well, that's interesting. We'll come back to it. Verse 13, Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, going north. To him belong the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, in Gilead. To him also belong the region of Argob, in Bashan. Sixty large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. That's a huge area, but now we've crossed the Jordan River. This is where the half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad settled. Um, the gates on the, the cities are because they are the first line of defense against the rest of the world. If Israel gets attacked, these people in these 60 cities get attacked first. So they got big bronze gates. Verse 14, Ahinadab, the son of Edu, in Manaheim, that's also east of the Jordan. Uh, Jacob, is. this is where he arrived. This is where David fled to when he was uh, fleeing Saul. Verse 15, Ahimaaz in Naphtali. He also took Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, as a wife. Again, this is the area around Galilee. It's like beautiful lake country. Must be some benefits to being married into Solomon's family. Uh, the fishing in Galilee is prime fishing territory. Uh, honestly, people make a living on Galilee fishing even today. So beautiful lake to fish on. 16, Ba'ana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Aloth. That's the coastal north end of Israel. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in Issachar, southwest of Galilee. Again, beautiful territory. Shimei, the son of Elah. This is not the Shimei that just got killed in the last chapter. It's just a popular name. Son of Elah distinguishes him from the other Shimei. In Benjamin, uh, this is immediately north of Jerusalem, so we're coming back in. Gabar, the son of Uri, the land of Gilead. In the country of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan. Again, massive area east of the Jordan, but it's all rocky, nasty territory, which is why it's such a big geographical area. He was the only governor who was in the land. So apparently this last person, Geber, was a pretty competent leader that he managed that big of a territory. So there's some implication that that would be big. So a couple notes on the territories. They're geographic, not tribal. So even though Israel has a natural tribal distinction of 12 tribes of Israel with territories, Solomon doesn't use that map. He makes his own map that the only way to really sort this out is that he organizes it by geographic region and economy. So Solomon doesn't do things the way they've always been done because for what Solomon wants to do, he wants to unite Israel. So it doesn't make sense to divide it by tribes. He divides it by these regions, and he puts his own people over the head of these regions. That means that the head of the tribe would have almost equal authority with the head that, that Solomon's put in place. He puts his own governors out in the land. And again, he's organizing the country um, because he wants that to not be an issue. Um, these land types, some people argue, are divided by the kind of economy that comes out of there. So this region's a mining region. This region's kind of more in farming. This is more in fishing. And the way he would separate the 12 months, the Jews believed, was based on when harvests would come in those different fields. So, you know, the, 
the Megiddo Valley would be harvesting in the, in the late spring and late fall. So that would be you know, during that time that they would bring in provision to the kingdom. So this is immediately an example of wisdom of Solomon. So he has wisdom that we showed in judging with the two women. Now we see examples of him having wisdom in civic administration. He's organizing it. He's doing it his way. He's being intentional. Um, as a comparison, government-wise, he actually has got a pretty light load on people. They're paying one-twelfth of the, the government's funding uh, with an annual lo uh, loyalty, but that means they're only bringing things in once every 12 months. By comparison, a middle to upper middle class person in the United States is paying one-third to one-fourth of their income. So almost triple percentage-wise what Solomon asked of his people. And Israel thrived under that pretty minimal taxation that he put in place. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. Again, this is the little, you know, this is what Israelites do when they're left alone. They eat, drink, and rejoice. They do their feasts every month, and they celebrate, and they hang out, and they sing songs. And the only thing to get in the way would be some Grinch coming in saying, don't do that, like Pharaoh, like Sihon. Verse 21, so Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. The river in verse 21 is likely the Euphrates-Tigris River Valley. So given the regions we just got done doing, those two big regions east of the Jordan uh, would, in, would mean that you need to go to the river, and the only the river that would be east of those regions would be the Euphrates. So this is a massive territory. Israel's never had this much territory. The largest Israel ever got is under Solomon. This is a time of peace. In a time of peace, populations grow, which means more workers, which means more food, which means you can support a bigger population. And Israel just thrives. And the end result of their thriving is joy. And I just, at the end of verse 20, rejoicing is the end result of peace. And this is what God wanted to bless his people with, a season of peace and rest where they could just have joy. So we get this promise fulfilled of the sand by the sea. That's a phrase to mean that you can't really count that many people. And of course, they had less, you know, they didn't have Google to help count people. So their, their census methods were different. Um, but this fulfills a promise that was made to Abraham back in chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 22. God promised Abraham that the, his descendants would be like the sand of the sea. Countless or endless. Promise kept. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 22. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep, besides the deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. What it took to run this huge administration was a ton of resources. So we don't often buy by the cower anymore. That would be like a big, huge gallon, one of those big gallon jugs, like a barrel of oil, only full of flour. So for one day, they'd go through 30 of those. Again, you, you tally that up, it looks like the big feast that he had, which would have fed about 15,000 people. This feeds about 15,000 people every day. So a massive amount of food to run things. What are these people all doing in the administration? And what we're going to see is that Solomon took on massive construction projects, huge construction projects. Building the temple, the first temple, is probably the top of that list, right? But we saw at the beginning of the last chapter, he's building the palace, 
the wall of Jerusalem, and the temple. So this isn't a list, by the way, verses 22 and 23. Those are not luxury items. We don't see wine on the list. We don't see olive oil on the list. We don't see anything that would be like fancy. This is basic meat and bread provision. Solomon has prosperity, but he's using it practically. He's not wasting his money on dumb things. And so it's interesting to see how he leads. Again, this is an example of wisdom. This is listed right after God's promise. And what the writer is showing is that that fulfillment was made. Solomon led, but he wasn't an oppressive leader. He led with organization. He raised up leaders. He organized things not by tribes, but by geography. He, he had a household that had a massive provision, tons of wealth, but he wasn't foolish with his wealth. We're going to see kings coming up in the in first and second kings. They are foolish with their wealth. Verse 24, for he, Solomon, had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipshah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. Again, that river is the Euphrates. And he had peace on every side all around him, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. A summative statement to say, God blessed Israel. From here to here, from there to there, blessed all over the place. The Each man under his vine and fig, fig tree is another idiom for everybody took care of their household. Everybody's business was handled. And Solomon modeled that, and, and he saw that that happened. The best a good government can ever provide is that people can just be under their fig tree. Like they can just raise their family, have their household, and not worry about threats from the outside world. That's the best any government can offer. Freedom. Freedom to live your life within the absolutes of God's law. So this phrase will continue to get used throughout the Bible. It basically means this is a nation that's not at war. Amen to that. Like it's hard to read through David's battles because you're like, ooh, cringeworthy. Then you get to Solomon and it's like, no, that's what we want. That's the result of all that is peace. And not only is this peace for Israel, but it's peace for all of the neighbors of Israel. This is good for them too. So the, the Israel getting strong and peaceful blesses everybody they're next to because the trade networks start. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these, uh, so... <laughs> How can you have 12,000 horsemen and 40,000 stalls? There are people, this is one of the big debates, if you're looking for mistakes in the Bible, there are translators that believe that should say 4,000 stalls instead of 40,000 stalls. If that's the biggest mistake you can find in the Bible, I'm pretty confident the Bible's a solid book that I'm going to go with. But that's one of the spots. I told you I'd point them out. Um, so 4,000 stalls and horses with 12,000 horsemen is, seems like a different thing because you can have shifts. Also in Chronicles, they, that number becomes 4,000. Verse 27, these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to Solomon's, King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. In other words, each of the regions tried to better the other regions. Like the goal wasn't to be stingy with what you gave to Solomon. You give as much as you can to Solomon to show how loyal you are. We're on your side. We trust you. And in great prosperity, you give that prosperity back to the king. I'm doing really well right now, Lord. I'm going to bless people with what I have. So there's no indication here that this is wrong. It's an indication that this is proving the wealth of Solomon. Uh, you can look at it as a, a spiritual wealth if you want to look at it as a pattern. Verse 28, they also brought barley and straw to the proper place 
for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. So again, I'm saying that there's nothing here that indicates that's wrong, but if you're in little Jewish school and the rabbi shares this story with you, the rabbi might stop here and say, what's wrong with this picture? Is some, like, yes, this is an indication of prosperity and Solomon's doing really well, but what's wrong with this? And the bright student in the classroom would raise their hand and go, Deuteronomy 17. He's not supposed to collect chariots. Why would a king do that if their trust is in the Lord? If God fights our battles, why do you need an army? So Deuteronomy 17, 16 says, The king shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. To that end, he should multi he should to that to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord has said to you, he shall henceforth return no more that way. A king that builds an army with the horses is not doing what God asked him to do. So that's a warning sign, just like the Egyptian mentioned at the beginning of the last chapter. There's these little seeds that get planted by the writer. So is Solomon breaking the law or not? He took an Egyptian wife. Is that breaking the law or not? He built up an army. Is that breaking the law? Is it not breaking the law? These are the kinds of questions that students of Judaism would have for thousands of years, even today. Did Solomon do this right or did he not do it right? And the Mishnah is full of like the proper answer to those questions in Judaistic tradition. Each man according to his charge. In the Hebrew, the word each there is mithpot, a judgment or to do right. Each man is doing right according to what God's given him. So everybody does their job. Solomon does his job at the top. All the way through, people are doing their job. So as we know later, Solomon's going to fall. Chapter 11's coming. And it sets up the writing of these other books. But this passage validates the fact that when he's writing Ecclesiastes and he said, I had everything, here's another book source that confirms that. Yet Solomon had everything he wanted. Everybody gave as much as they could. This was Solomon's court. Everybody had a job. Every job was different but good. Everybody did right by the job that they had, and they used their judgment to do it according to his charge, mispot. Making individual judgments about what it is right to do. Solomon didn't tell them how much to give, but everybody gave according to what they were supposed to give. Everybody was listening to the Holy Spirit. So in the church, it works the same way. Everybody in the church, small family Bible study, all the way to huge super churches, Everyone has a job to do that the Holy Spirit's called you to do. Are you, is each person doing according to their charge, what God's given you to do? And it's a, it's a question we have to ask ourselves if we're doing our job diligently or if we're not. Because God's plan for a peaceful body of Christ, a kingdom of God, is that the kingdom operates like this. Everybody does according to their charge. And that job that God's given you, you do it with everything you got every single day. And you do it faithfully because God's put it on you to do it. And, and I think that, that God will test you sometimes. Some weeks it won't be easy to do that charge. But you keep doing it. You do it with diligence. So everybody to their charge. That's the amount of time you have, the measure, the service, the skill, the wisdom, the talent, the provisions that you might be able to provide, the help that you can provide, the hospitality that you provide, all of it. Everyone give according to their charge. Verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. So you see we're kind of bookending that passage. This is all proof. God filled in his end of the bargain. 
and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. In the same way that Israel grew, God made Solomon grow too. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled in the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He's the smartest guy on the planet. For he was wiser than all men, verse 31, than Ethan the Ezraite, than Hemnon, than Shiachol, than Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. I love these references, like we've never heard of these people. And that's the point. We've all heard of Solomon. We haven't, you know, most of us haven't studied He-Man, but, well, okay, different He-Man. <laughs> that's funny. And Darda, I'll just go with Darda. We don't know who Darda is. But here's the thing, Solomon's known throughout all the ages because of his wisdom. And when they mention these, it sets it in place that this was written around this time because the writer thinks we all know who these people are. Well, he's smarter than that guy. He's smarter than that. He's smarter than Bill Gates. He's smarter than Elon Musk. He's smarter than Joe Biden. Smarter than all of them. Smarter than the smartest people you can think of. I won't be biased. Smarter than Donald Trump. Right? This Solomon, he was, he was supernaturally smart. And then we get examples of that. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. I'm on a good day if I got one joke on the tip of my tongue ready to go or one word of wisdom. I praise the Lord that, boy, that was a good, hey, Lord, you really said something through that. Solomon, had, he spoke 1,000 proverbs. This guy always had the right thing to say. His songs were 1,005. Well, that's interesting in the Bible, we only get Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. We only have two at Song of Solomon. We got three psalms from Solomon. It says here there's 1,005. So they lost his music book. But this guy was writing songs. He had wisdom. He was a writer. He was a musician. And this is all in his early years. God gives this guy wisdom. You think the human brain, we use about 5% of the capacity of the human brain. The neurons and dendrites, for people that have not damaged the neurons and dendrites, are fully capable of far more than any human really covers. All God had to do with Solomon is just unlock that brain a tick, and he becomes the smartest guy ever. What does it look like in heaven when we get renewed bodies and we have eternity to learn? All the libraries of the world, you got eternity to read through them. So when we read through this, this is an image of, I think, just a taste of what heaven looks like for all of us. Every interest you have, you got the time and the intelligence to dig in, study it, learn it. Well, he's a writer. He's a proverb writer. He's a musician. Verse 33, he spoke of trees. From the cedar of the tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. From the greatest tree to the least of trees. He's a botanist. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and fish. He's a zoologist. Like, this guy just studies it all. And the men of all nations from the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He's a philosopher. He's a political scientist. He's a botanist. He's a scientist. He's an artist. He's got it all. And just because God said, I'll give you wisdom. You ever meet people that they just hear things and they retain them? That's Solomon. He hears it, he locks it in. He's just naturally gifted, not just in intelligence, but in how to apply it, and that builds out the world. That's what we're going to see in the coming chapters as we get, go through chapter 10. We're going to see Solomon build one of the greatest empires the world's ever seen. And it's going to be kind of fun to watch that happen. All of this speaks not of Solomon, because he's just a young man. Remember the beginning of chapter 3? I'm just a young man. I don't know what I'm doing. 
All of this speaks to God's blessing on a single individual because he loved his dad. What a gift. What a mercy. If God can bless Solomon like this, how much more has he promised to bless us in this exact same way? So I think, and this is just, we can talk about this afterwards, I think the pursuit of knowledge is absolutely in line with God's will for our lives. I think those little curiosities we have to learn about this or that or the other thing, and we pursue those things, I think God delights in seeing his children use their brains. So every hobby we have and interest we have, well, I'm just wasting my time. No, you're using the brain God gave you to do things. I'm going to take a Saturday and paint a painting with my friends. What a gift. What a glory to God that you take some time with art, with science, with philosophy, with politic politics, and you are, you're a renaissance man or a renaissance woman, and you're doing all of it because God gave you a brain to use, and you become a gift to the people around you because you know things, and you become wise. So to whatever extent we can be more like this, I think is absolutely glorifying to God. So Solomon knows a lot of stuff, and he has a supernatural gift to apply it. That's the end of chapter 4. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for just this model of Solomon, uh, his humility before the king, and how you've blessed his early life and early kingship. Lord, we've sinned too, and we've made mistakes, and I appreciate the honesty of the authors to to show us those early spots where Solomon started to go wrong. But I also appreciate where we can see how he went right. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us to pursue you with everything we have, to honor you with both humility and and truth. Uh, Lord, to be humble. And may our hearts be ones of service. Lord, he didn't ask for riches. He asked to be able to serve the people that you put in his charge. Lord, I know each person in this room has a charge in life that can seem overwhelming and intimidating. Lord, bless them. Bless them so that they know the glory of God in their lives. And Lord, may we be like Solomon and that we carry those charges out faithfully. And may the people around us also learn how to do that because of our example, Lord. May we imitate you. May we imitate the model of Christ, Lord, and we can just be a blessing to the people around us. Lord, bless this week and uh, bless uh, our fellowship afterwards here as we talk about your word in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.